Welcome to the Failsafe, a podcast about writing and failure. On this episode of the Failsafe, I talk with Kristen Radke during the 2017 Mission Creek Festival in Iowa City. Kristen Radke is the author of the graphic memoir Imagine Wanting Only This from Pantheon. She is also the art director and New York editor of The Believer magazine. The Failsafe is produced by Draft, the Journal of Process in the Iowa Writers' House. Draft publishes first and final drafts of stories, essays, and poems, along with author interviews about the creative process. Find them online at draftjournal.com. The Iowa Writers' House is a community literary organization based in Iowa City that's dedicated to creating a space for education, support, and resources for writers. Find them online at iowawritershouse.org. Coming up, what is the difference between a pathological liar and a really good writer? Hint, nothing. Also, can you be both a respected artist and a best-selling author? What makes a manuscript stand out from the slush? And so much more in this really phenomenal interview. I'm Rachel Yoder, and this is The Failsafe. Hey, everyone. We're back. Hi. How's it going? Uh, Today, we have a really amazing conversation, I think, if I do say so myself, with Kristen Radke. Um, She wrote this, she wrote and drew a book, and I haven't talked to anyone yet about you know, doing a graphic memoir, graphic novel. And so it was really fun to just talk about that art form. Um, Because, you know, we talk a lot about writing. And so talking about writing and drawing and how those work together was a fun new thing to do. Uh, I also definitely want to give a shout out to the Englert Theater in Iowa City because they welcomed us into their darkened theater during Mission Creek and Tori got us all set up on the soundboard and we were able to sit in that really cool space, talk about failure um, while this really inspiring and fun festival was going on. So thanks, Anglert peeps. We had a lot of fun there. Um, yeah, so I hope you like this. I think you will. Kristen has, you know, seen really great success this year and you should go buy her book because it's truly excellent. And hope you enjoy our convo. Do I have to talk into this? Like you do. This? You have to. Like really you have to own it. Do my lips have to touch it? <laughs> no, you don't want your lips to touch it. <laughs> um, so congrats on all the success Thank with you. your book. I just um, took a look at it. And it's really amazing. Thanks. And it made me really sad. Good. Too. Yeah. Uh, and it made me remember how shitty my 20s were. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that was my only goal. <laughs> so, you know, you're on the fail safe. We talk about failure. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering do you even believe in failure within a creative life? Do you even think? in terms of failure or do you frame it some other way? Yeah, I definitely believe in failure. 
I, I thought you probably yeah. would. I was hoping you would say you did. Yeah. Um, I don't really know if I, I always try to convince myself when things don't work that I've like learned something from the process or if I like agree to some stupid assignment I shouldn't have because I didn't have an idea and then I've tried to f- make something up and pretend like it was profound and it didn't work that I've learned something but I usually don't think that I have and I'm I have like very little tolerance for wasted time like that really kills me um so I don't know I haven't really come to terms with how I feel about failure yet but I definitely believe in it so you don't so say you'll have an idea and attempt something or um like you said have an an assignment and like don't pull it off in some way there's nothing uh productive that comes out of that for you well if I'm drawing so much of drawing is just labor and so I just have all this crap that I've made that I can't do anything with and sometimes I can like regurgitate it later like some magazine that is really nice that I like but can't pay me any money really wants something of mine and I'll be like here's this weird page that I drew but then that's also that feels like disingenuous and kind of wrong too um but it depends on the project like if I'm learning something new like if I'm trying a video or um, some new form or something that I feel like is more beneficial but if I'm doing something in a mode in which I normally working like drawing it takes me you know a certain amount of time to come up with the idea for the drawing and then once I have that part it's just execution for days and days so that to me feels like I didn't really gain anything from that experience if the piece then ultimately fails so now that you're more you know, you're in a, in a time in your career where you're working, where your art is your work. Did you feel, and you kind of alluded to this in what you just said, but did you feel a kind of different relationship to experimentation and failure when you were an art student and when you were in grad school? Um, how has, how is it different then to sort of fail with an idea or a project versus now when, you know, the stakes are a little bit different? Um, I definitely had a different relationship with failure when I was a grad student, probably because I didn't totally understand what failure was. Like getting a bad workshop felt like devastating. And, but I still felt like that, you know, I now have all this time to rework this and I can make something new with it. Um, but I definitely felt maybe like sometimes humiliated. Like if I, if I made something in grad school that, got a bad workshop or even that got a good workshop and then it got rejected by like every place that exists on the planet like that felt shameful in a way that it doesn't necessarily now like now I'm just I'm much more more quick to move on than I used to be maybe the work and also the work feels less personal to me now than it did um it feels less like a part of me so maybe even yeah like less maybe before the work was kind of motivated by a need to resolve something or work through yeah. something and now you have like multiple motivations for it because it's that's really interesting yeah I've never thought about it like that yeah because now sometimes I am just doing something because I needed money yeah right <laughs> and in grad school I needed money too but no one would pay me money for anything that I did <laughs> um but in grad school too it was so much and being especially I think when you're really young it's so much about ego it's mm. so much about proving yourself um and not that it's still not like I still feel like I have so much to prove and I feel like as a woman I'm going to feel that my whole life but 
I feel like I've, I at least have like an accomplishment. I can say, well, I've done this. So it's fine if, you know, whoever magazine thought that the the thing they asked me to write wasn't what they were looking for Mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. So your book, Imagine Wanting Only This, Mm -hmm. which will be out by the time this podcast is out. um, It has at its core a failed relationship Mm -hmm. and it's kind of about failed places. And so I'm wondering, you know, obviously this book is a culmination of, you know, a lot of learning and work you did um, both in undergrad and grad school. So what sort of failures or attempts did you need to make to get to this book can you just talk a little bit about I mean even if it's like different media like the did you try to approach the story first just like purely through writing have you did you try to approach it purely through images because I feel like there's probably an interesting sort of evolution that took place leading up to it so the book was when I started it um, the earliest pieces of it were just essays I was writing for workshop prose essays in grad school and it took me a really long time to realize that there was even anything in common between those pieces. Like when I was talking about like a failed relationship or um, the aftermath of someone's death or something like that, that I was always then moving to like, I want to go to Colorado or wherever to see this abandoned city. And I kept doing that, but I didn't even realize necessarily that all of the cities and places had something in common. So I feel like I needed readers in graduate school to be like, here you are again, you know, recognize this. And then it was my last semester of grad school where I decided to try doing graphic stuff. Like I had started doing some like stop motion animation videos and stuff, which was really super fun and time consuming and not lucrative in any way. (laughs) Um, But I liked the experience of drawing those things. So then I started trying to experiment with like putting like a drawing in the corner of like a Microsoft Word document and like that was my graphic (laughs) essay right which ultimately um, makes no sense but that was I think for a long time it was about you know I read graphic novels I liked graphic novels but the idea of making something you know making a person or a place look consistent over 300 pages was like impossible so it was about also convincing myself that I could do it and teaching myself how to do it so you you weren't writing or workshopping graphic essays no No. Mm -mm. is that something that you had ever thought about wanting to do and kind of were like oh I can't do that I mean is it something you had played around with that's so interesting that yeah because yeah I, I was really surprised when I read the book too because we went to grad school together and so obviously have some you know knowledge of the stories in the book but I just I didn't know you were doing so much and like traveling so much I didn't know you'd gone I mean I guess I knew you went to art school but when you come to grad school you think oh everyone here is just a writer and you have all of these talents you sort of brought together um so I'm just sort of fascinated that it like turned into this graphic yeah but I mean I, I definitely thought I was a writer like one of the big fears for me about drawing this book was people are going to be like Kristen wasn't a good enough writer so she decided she had to draw it you know and there's it's just like it's amazing these weird insecurities you get and you're just certain someone's going to say this isn't literature or um you don't know what you're doing or like clearly you're not a comics artist which I totally am not and wasn't and I'm not trained in it anyway and it felt confusing and weird to you know I'd spent years getting workshopped 
my writing workshop, but no one had ever critiqued my drawings outside of like figure drawing classes in college and stuff. So, and then people who critiqued my comics were writers. I never had like a comics mm. artist sit down and be like, you don't know how to draw hands or coffee tables <laughs> or trees or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it wasn't even something that I wanted to do for long. It was just something I thought I wanted to try and uh, it felt impossible. And I remember reading like Alison Bechtel's Fun Home and thinking there's just no reality in which that's possible. And there was not like my first drawings were um, were sections that ended up in the book but were t- entirely redrawn. So um, it's interesting you say that what you said that you're afraid people will be like, oh, Kristen yeah. can't write. Yeah. So she did. I mean, it, it just seems like so much, <laughs> so much of an accomplishment to draw like 300 pages. Um, but I think there is, you know, I think writers probably do have attitude about graphic novels um, because they haven't been educated about them. I feel like I've gotten an education in the past couple of years because um, my very eclectic husband has become obsessed with graphic novels. And into like really weird graphic novels. Yeah. And he, and he just like reads like across the whole spectrum and has been, at first I was like, Oh my God, I married a man who reads comics. Yeah. And I was just, okay. Video games and comics. But he's like, no, you're being snobby. And these are actually really amazing. And they are. And like opened, opened up my mind to like, oh, this is a really amazing art form. It's, like, really sophisticated. Yeah. Um, so, you, yeah, I, I I'd never thought that you would have any insecurities like that. But, of course, like, yeah. am I a writer or am I an artist? And, of course, I can be both and be good at both. Yeah, but it definitely – I mean, I, f- I still feel really insecure about it. I still feel like, you know, I've never applied for a grant or something for writing because I'm like, surely this committee will think, you know, what is this – drawings person doing here you know like cartoonists um my favorite ever review I've ever seen of a graphic novel on Amazon was I forget what the graphic novel was and the review was a one star and it said this is full of pictures I wanted to read a book (laughs) (laughs) but I'm like waiting for that still um can I also just tell you I was talking to someone once and about a collection that I was trying to sell and he had sold a book and I said, oh, is your, is your book a collection? And he said, no, it's a book. It's yeah, a real book. Yeah. And I was like, oh, sorry, I don't have a real book. <laughs> it's so weird that we have all these different, like, ways of making, like, ourselves feel bad in comparison. Totally. To, like... Well, and plus it's like, so I wrote a graphic book, but it's also being called a memoir. And in graduate school, I mean, I would have, like, shot myself in the face if you had told me <laughs> I would be publishing a memoir. Like, that was such a dirty word. And it was so much less literary than the essay. And, you know, we had all this, you know, and I had one, but it's still like in me, even though I'm like proud that I have a book that I feel good about. Um, And during one interview I was doing the other day, this guy is like, I don't know why it's called a memoir. Like, this is clearly a book length essay. And I felt like I wanted to just like hug him. Like, (laughs) you're like, you get it. (laughs) Totally. You didn't call it a memoir. Yeah. Yeah, And somehow memoirs become a dirty word. And I'm like, it's really hard to write a good memoir. Like. Which is probably why it's a dirty word, because there's so many bad ones. Yeah. But there are so many great ones. And we've also read terrible novels, but we don't talk about novel as if it's some, like, Some people (laughs) don't. Some people do. So so I know that you 
when you turn when you sold this book, it was maybe a very different book yeah. than it is now. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about that process? You know, like what it was sort of when you sold it and you're like, I'm done. I, I sold sure. my book. Someone wants to publish it. And then kind of what the process was of turning yeah. it into what it's become. For sure. So the process was really long. So it started with find, trying to find an agent and that just did not work for a long time. And everyone was like, we love this. We don't know how to sell it. Or I don't really? represent graphic work. Huh. Or this is really smart, but it feels like a collection. It doesn't feel like a book. Um, I had a lot of that. And then um, my agent ended up finding me and uh, we started working together. And then the, the book went out and... It got a lot of the, we love this, but we don't sell, we can't sell it. My favorite one was like, I liked this, but not all the way and not all the way through and not enough to want to publish it. And then it's you're like, oh, gee, yeah. thanks. <laughs> yeah. um, but then Pantheon, you know, Pantheon was the publisher that I always wanted because they publish the best graphic novels, I think, in North America. Um, and I thought there was no way they'd ever be interested. And after getting maybe like, five to ten rejections I got my agent got this email from Dan Frank the editor-in-chief of Pantheon that was like I want to meet with Kristen can she come in they also understand graphic right. novels yeah. in a way that yeah. other people probably don't yeah. yeah so I just panicked for like a day and a half waiting for this meeting and then went in and was in his office for about six minutes like it was the fastest meeting ever right, of course and I had like cleared my whole day you know <laughs> <laughs> to meet with the editor-in-chief of Pantheon and um I made a list of like every book he'd ever acquired, so I could like name drop Chris <laughs> right, right, and everyone in the. You're very prepared. Like, I've read Art Spiegelman, <laughs> um, and he he was just like, "You, here's what you're doing and that works. Here's what you're doing that's not. What do you think about that?" And I was like, "Yes, thank you very much. Great." <laughs> and he was like, "Okay, thanks. Like, see you." And he's so, like, I can work with you. You are malleable. Yeah, but yeah. he still didn't say he would work with me. Okay. And so I went home. I ripped the entire book apart and I started working on the first two chapters and I rewrote and redrew the first two chapters. It took me like six or nine, six months and then wrote an outline. My agent sent it back to Dan. Frank. So this was without, this was without a contract. Okay. You're just like, yeah, he I, was like, I'd be happy to look at it again. And I'm like, wow. Okay. A little. And then I went home and I worked really hard and it's a totally different book because what I sent out initially was a collection of essays and he was like this is a collection I don't want to publish a collection I want to publish you know a, a memoir a, a memoir mm -hmm. and I was really resistant to that but he was totally right and it's a much better book so I said then I sent it back to him and sold it on two two chapters and then I had like a year and a half to finish the whole thing wow so so what was it like before you had a contract redoing the book I mean were you just incredibly motivated yeah. were you scared did you have moments of doubt I mean I, I I'd imagine it was a mix of both kind of being like this is my shot yeah this is awesome I yeah. can do this and also like oh my god Terror. like totally. what yeah yeah because also like speaking of feeling like an idiot like there was there's no way I could not spend six months writing a book for a person who then wouldn't have wanted it um but I in my mind at the time, I was like, if I do this, he will publish it. Like, I had to believe that. And I thought, and what he said to me resonated so much. And I remember thinking, I know that I can do this. Like, he's seen this book in a way, even I haven't seen it. And no one else who's read it has seen it. And he's totally right. And I can make this book. And that had to be my attitude, which isn't to say, like, I didn't, like, have nights where I was just a wreck thinking this book could never be published. But I had to work on it every day. And I worked on it every day for yeah. so long. 
Um, and I just, I just felt like if I, if I finish this, he will publish it. And I was fortunate that he did. So when you're redoing a graphic novel or memoir mm-hmm. book, um, it's probably quite a bit different than writing because you can't really, can you kind of reuse something? Yeah, definitely. You, you can. So okay. I do everything digitally. I'm like super amazed at people who draw by hand because it just seems like such a pain. And I, so I can like, you know, if a person's too small or I want a person to be in the front of the room instead of the back, I can like highlight that person that I've drawn and like move them and Pull make them, them up, bigger. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of drawings where I think initially too, when I did the first draft of the book, the only thing I wanted to do was get it done. So I was like, I have one paragraph of text that I want to try to fit on this page. So that means I have five boxes that I need to fill with drawings. And it was just like, what can I draw and fill it as fast as I can? So a lot like the book, the book moved like, you know, like soap operas that have like shortcuts and every scene is like 20 seconds or less mm-hmm. and then it fades out to a new scene. Like yeah. that was my book at okay. first. It was just like quick, quick, quick. Here's an idea. Turn the page. Here's another idea. No scene. Like just really rapid fire. Um, this conversation would have, be, have been like a page when it should have probably been like 10. Right, right. So, and also part of that was drawing insecurity. Like I didn't feel like I could draw two people in conversation for 10 pages. Um, and then I finally just gave into that idea. So the book became way longer in revision. And I just got kind of got less scared of the blank squares. Yeah. I, I One moment I really loved in your book um, that I thought showed like this really nice level of sophistication, even though like, what do I know? But, um, it's when you're having a conversation, um, or when the, is it you? Is, is it, it Kristen? I don't, know. I don't know. When the main character is having a conversation with her boyfriend, but we're seeing it in a bedroom from the top down yeah. and there's like mold that's growing on the walls yeah. as you move through it and things are changing. I don't know. It was just, I was like, oh, that's just like a really nice way of showing time pass and showing sort of like the tedium and how they're so contained in this tiny space. Um, Yeah. Yeah, And that was a really late addition to the book that was towards the end. And again, it was just like that fear of failure, I guess, because I I drew a room from aerial view and I don't look at rooms from an aerial view. (laughs) So like, how am I supposed to do that? Yeah. Um, So you just, you know, you redraw it a bunch of times. So how did you teach yourself to be, a graphic novelist I mean um obviously you've probably read a lot do you kind of like look at what other people have done to kind of get inspiration and move into your own work I think I really looked at other people for um thinking about space like I didn't understand someone asked me once if I used movies and like film as inspiration for Mm. how to frame a scene and I was like god why did I think of that (laughs) like my book was done and I thought why haven't I been using like shot film shots yeah yeah um but like I remember looking at Alison Bechtel and seeing the way she would pan out and back up out of a room or how would she transition or how if the character is just thinking thoughts what does she draw well that happens because I mean, like one of the things in my book, it was like, how many times can I have my narrator character like walking alone at night thinking (laughs) about things? Like at a certain point, it's like I have to draw something else. And it was really, that was stuff was really hard to navigate. And I felt like I needed models to do that. But there also aren't a lot of nonfiction models that do that. I mean, there's just not that many people doing that kind of work. Yeah. And yeah, it does seem like film is a natural inspiration. I, this is on my reading list, but I've heard that that book, Understanding Comics, yeah. is just like completely amazing yeah. for any art form. Yeah. 
um, for kind of thinking about. For thinking about, I mean, I honestly, when I was teaching in grad school, I remember using comics and graphic novels as a way to talk about pace. And it's super, that's really interesting to think about how do you pace out a story and how do you think about perspective and things like that. And that's useful for any medium. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, I was talking with Kelly Link last night and she is really into, you know, she's kind of coming at her writing just from like a genre perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, she went through literary arts programs, but she's also like, I wanted to be a sci-fi writer. Yeah. Like <laughs> the Pulitzer nomination was great, but um, but she's like, I want to keep the story going, and I want it to be interesting, and I want to know where it begins and where it ends. And I think about plot a lot. I'm like, oh, I wish we would talk about right. that. And yeah, you know, we had talked about that in MFA land because yeah. it seems really crucial. Yeah. And it's what editors Look talk about totally. Yeah, but we didn't. We were never attuned to plot. Everything was about craft. And I'm glad that I learned that. I mean, I. Some of a lot of the sentences I wrote in grad school ended up in the book, and in a certain way, I feel like I couldn't even write those sentences now. Mm, like I'm yeah. just so focused now on—I don't know—my brain is different now, or something. I totally understand. Yeah, yeah it's you're looking elsewhere now, or you're right. just like not in the same space. Um, so, so your book, as you mentioned, I mean, has a lot to do with sort of aloneness and and things that have fallen apart. Um, I mean, it's, it's, and it's like a long book. It's like almost yeah. 300 pages. Yeah. Um, so I, I was wondering if like dwelling on this project and working on this project for so long, did it help you sort of work through something? Was it, was it kind of cathartic in a way or did it just kind of perpetuate the sadness? Because again, like I said, I was like, oh my God. So glad I'm not in my twenties yeah. anymore because I was I just got really sad reading it, which is you know also speaks <laughs> to just how great of a book it is. Yeah, I totally it totally extended and perpetuated everything, which isn't to say I'm not going to do that again because I've, I'm working <laughs> on a new project now that has me thinking a lot about like old lovers and people that I don't really think about anymore, but I do now because of the book. Right, and it's I felt the same way. You know, my, I write about my ex fiance in the book. I write about my uncle who died about ten years ago, and those people who I was thinking about on maybe like a healthy amount every day when I was writing about them then they were in my dreams then I was thinking about them constantly and but in a certain way that's sort of therapeutic too to be like oh this is the especially if you're talking about like an ex-boyfriend this is the art that's in that's making this person come to me I'm not like it sort of removes the power of them as sort of this entity in your life and it's like I'm repurposing you now yeah I mean it's sort of like objectifying them in a way like turning it into something you can pick up and look at and and think about in an intellectual right. intellectual way even and it's not just purely this like right. pathos like oh which is still doesn't mean it doesn't make you feel like a lunatic when you're having <laughs> dreams about a person you haven't seen yeah. in like six years yeah like that's definitely a part of the process too <laughs> so wait you said you're working on another book yeah I'm working on that... two more two more book projects right now yeah. with different topics though yes. but but they're also kind of like harder topics. They'll, um, they'll, one is nonfiction and then I'm working on a novel, a graphic novel, which is really fun because I can depart from reality a little bit, but I feel like there's no way I could ever write something that wasn't informed a little bit by my own experience. Oh, yeah, like I've never been too. one of those people who can like invent everything. Um, yeah. I, I always say that like, 
I'm actually, I'm actually like, I don't have a very good imagination. Do I. <laughs> like I don't like making stuff up, Me neither. Uh, but I can tell a good story yeah. that's like confuses people. Cause they don't know whether it's true yeah. or not. Yeah. I'm really just good at exaggerating. Me too. And often <laughs> when I tell, if I, if I make something up or if I exaggerate something, it becomes real to me. Oh yeah. And I like, that's how I remember it. Well, it's also because there's something in the exaggeration that's like true to, to the you. feeling right. of right. what happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why James Fry got in trouble. I think that we're just justifying <laughs> our lies right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's not a sign of like a pathological liar that like she believes her lies. Or just maybe a really good writer. A really good writer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's just move on <laughs> from that. Um, so you're also the managing editor at Sarah Band. I am. I was wondering why or how the manuscripts you reject fail as books. Like, have you seen any patterns and like, oh, I'm interested in this as a project, but I'm not going to take it. Um, do you kind of see the same thing over and over? Or is it really kind of idiosyncratic based on the project? It's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just like talking with my coworker, Aria Lewitin, <laughs> and she's sitting for right next to me. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, there's probably only been like 15 manuscripts, 20 manuscripts in my entire time at Saraband, which is about five years that I've rejected that I really liked still. I mean, almost every manuscript I reject, it just seems so clearly not a book or not a book that I'm interested in. Like it's just, there's just nothing there that's grabbing me, which isn't to say that like everything that comes past my desk is bad or unpublishable. It's just really not. I'm not the right person for it. Right. Um, but the stuff that I feel like I reject, I mean, sometimes it's even like a, num a matter of space. We have, we publish 10 books a year. Um, I, I have, especially coming from Iowa where we have so many talented peers, I'm worried about a list that's full of Iowa grads. You know, I, the, the, the diversity of the list is really important to me. So I, sometimes I do feel like I'm deciding between two amazing pieces of writing so there's like all this other stuff that goes into it that has nothing to do with the book itself but the stuff that fails like narrow like just barely mm -hmm. fails I feel like um it's a great idea but it's not ready like so much of it is that it's not ready and I'm totally willing to sign a book that's not ready I think we at Sarah Band are totally willing to sign a book that's not ready if we believe that the writer can do it but so often especially when we're getting a shorter excerpt or something it's like can you can you make this to the next can you take this to the next stage right, right um because and also like some people aren't great at working with editors or they feel like they have such a vision for the project that they can't deviate from it or yep. something yeah and so i think um it's 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 about like trusting the re the writer enough to say we can bring this to the sort of finishing place together right so really it's just kind of a matter of things being sort of undercooked like, totally this is great yeah. it's just you need to yeah keep doing what you're doing or it's like boring <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> so many books are so competent and there's just like nothing there to pull you through yeah and I don't know how to say that or even how to what the like I don't know what to offer solution to offer to that problem which is really kind of excruciating yeah um because and I tend to I feel like I tend to be bored by books that 
more more than I more frequently than I should be. Like there are great books out there that I feel like I have to force myself through for at least a little bit. But I don't know. So it's just it's amazing to me the number of writers who are who are who are great on a craft level who probably have a good idea who everything is sort of where it needs to be, but it's just not working. Right. It's just like very competent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something I've been thinking a lot more about as I think about books is yes, I want, you know, a beautiful book and like beautiful writing, Mm -hmm. but I've been thinking a lot more about entertainment and performance that like, you know what, like you, your book kind of needs to like know how to tap dance or something like it has to, you, you need to entertain people. And also I think that's harder. Like I think, especially in grad school, I think we all focus so much on the art, the mm-hmm. art of a sentence, the art of a, like the, the moment between two paragraphs, you know, like we talk about that shit forever, <laughs> but can I say shit on this podcast? <laughs> we, I was just thinking we need more cursing. Okay, good. Um, I wanted to turn into a cursing okay, podcast. Good. Okay. Um, so what was I saying? What were you we talking about? Um, we were talking about performance. performance and, yeah. yeah. So I feel like we focus so much on craft that we f- we forgot to talk about, or maybe we didn't know how to talk about entertainment and accessibility. Or it seems like gauche or something right, totally. to you know. Accessible and it's like art has to be complicated. Like, yeah. This is my job. Right. Or like I want people to read this. I right. would like a lot of people to read right. this. I would like this to appeal to like right. a, a large audience. You just you never talk about that no. and. Because then you're less of an uh, artist or something, or you're selling out. Yeah. But really, I think that's much harder. I mean, I think the art should be a given. We should all assume that we are artists. We are showing up to make art. But to make art that can be appreciated by a, a group, a larger group of people is really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. yeah. And to keep those people engaged and entertained is really hard. And I feel like that's the thing that is really hard to teach and that we people need to focus on sort of from the beginning. Is that something that at all came up as you were rewriting the book? I mean, not only for the editor, do you, did you ever think about kind of like audience as you were writing the book? I did think, I did think about audience. Um, I've never, I always, I hear these writers say like, I write for myself. And I was like, God, if I was writing for myself, I would never be doing this. (laughs) Like who sits down every day to make, to arduously create something for themselves? I mean, like, Mazel tov if that's what you do, but like that just doesn't make sense to me. Like yeah. I, I do write books, books, a book, one book, hopefully more books, or whatever. I tweets or Facebook posts or, you know, an article or something because I hope that someone will engage with it in some way. Right. Um. So yeah, I do think I, I did think about audience, and I felt really afraid of the audience the whole time. I felt like there would be no audience for the book, and the parts that I was most afraid about or most self conscious about were the parts that a lot of people are like, this is the best, the best space. Or, you know, I have a couple of chapters that are really rooted in history that I was certain people were going to be so bored by. And they were pretty, that those were the parts that they sort of have kind of called out to me, whether it's like in an interview or, or a reader or something like that. Yeah. I mean, and I, I love those parts too in the book. And I think it's, it's sort of a, it's a fresh way of presenting facts, you yeah. know, or of doing reportage that, just doesn't happen a lot unless right. you're like really well versed right. in the graphic novel yeah. um landscape um so someone listening to this podcast right now has probably just had a really bad writing day yeah. and they're feeling like a failure and they're wondering if they should continue yeah. <laughs> um 
maybe you sometimes have really bad writing days, how do you trick yourself into keeping going? Um, and do you have any, this is like the uplifting part right. of the podcast. That's any good. words of, I mean, I think it's a little, I always feel hokey, but, but it's true. We're all kind of looking for, how do you keep writing yeah. even when you feel like it's not going to amount to anything? You just have to. And I know that that sounds absurd or like simple or something, but it's actually not. I mean, it's so hard to sit down and work every day, but you have to do it. Like that was the only way I could have done this book was by just like, I I remember writing on my kitchen. I had like a chalkboard wall in my old apartment, which I thought was very cool. (laughs) And I remember writing at some point, you just have to do the work on the wall. And then my friend Lucas Mann was in town and he watched and he was like, Jesus Christ. He's like, you have a black wall with, you just have to do the work in the center (laughs) of it. Like what is wrong with you? But it was true. I mean, you just, you just have to work. Like you have to be relentless you have to be ruthless it doesn't matter how you feel it doesn't matter what you'd rather be doing you just have to do it like the Chuck Close quote that I love so much is like inspiration is for amateurs the rest of us just sit down and get to work it's and true it's, that's so true like you just have to do it and sometimes it will take I mean if you're not feeling it it takes longer to get into it but you, you can get somewhere every day and if you don't get somewhere today the, the stuff you did or thought you weren't doing today will inform what you do tomorrow. Yeah. And I think that's part of, you know, the coming out of our twenties and moving into old age, bleak, <laughs> bleak middle age. Yeah. And just being like, Oh, it, it, it's not like a calling. It's not, no, it's not like metaphysical. No. There's not some like, muse no. you just it's just you sit down it's your job and some days it feels just like work yeah I mean every I've never I never enjoy writing <laughs> like I don't like I like drawing sometimes because I can sort of shut off a certain part of my brain and I can just execute and I can listen to the radio or like put on law and order svu and that's really comforting and nice yeah that sounds great yeah yeah and like there is there are parts of the process that like I can I, I try I trick myself into being like this isn't work like when I have to respond to emails which takes forever like you have to do your all your professional emailing and stuff I'll like make a snack and like, <laughs> like trick myself into being like this is very relaxing yeah <laughs> you know? right you know? ah, email so nice yeah like, best Christian <laughs> um you know but yeah I mean you just have to you just have to work and it's not because you have to because you were put here to be a writer there's no like sort of grand beautiful thing behind it like if you want to be a writer you just have to write yeah, that's so true. It's a good pragmatic <laughs> note to end on. I again, just like huge congrats. Um, your book is just really phenomenal and has been um, getting great reviews, and I think they're so well deserved. And just wish you all the best of luck. Thank you. And thanks for being on the podcast. It's so fun! I love this podcast. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> all right. If you haven't picked up a copy yet of Kristen's book, please. Go see your closest independent bookseller and buy it. It's called Imagine Wanting Only This. You can spend an entire evening reading it. You can feel things. It'll be great. (laughs) Um, I hope you enjoy it. And please also subscribe to to us, to The Failsafe on iTunes or SoundCloud. We have more great episodes coming up soon, including... Pulitzer finalist Kelly Link, National Book Award finalist Carmen Machado, and the winner of the Colorado Prize for Poetry, Lauren Haldeman, who will be our first poet we're talking to. 
This episode was edited and produced by yours truly, with production support by Andrea Wilson and Mark Planzak. As ever, the failsafe is a joint effort of Draft, the Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writers' House. I'm Rachel Yoder. Thanks for listening.